So I'm a film studies major, and I take most of my film classes at Barnard, meaning 80% of every class is female. However, this semester I'm in a Columbia University film production class, composed of four women and about 12 men. And let me just say, the class has been a very validating experience as to the importance of spending time in women's only spaces. In the class, I noticed myself feeling notably more uneasy. I usually am quick to share my opinions, but was pretty much silent in class the other day. I am far more self-conscious in my input and my ideas. I even sit in the back and find myself self-conscious about like my own body. In, in the class? Yeah, I don't know why. I don't feel like I'm trying to impress anyone, so it's weird. But I literally have been sitting smaller more hunched over, like trying to take up as little space as possible and using my hands to cover my stomach. When I was asked to share my short film ideas, my heart raced and I shared as quickly as possible. I didn't want to take up too much of the class's time or bore anyone with my stupid ideas. And none of the other girls raised their hands much either. Do you act differently in Barnard classes? I actually think I do, or at least I, I feel differently. It's super subtle, but I think I'm more at ease. I raise my hand more, feel less self-conscious about my answers. The weirdest thing though is that I probably wouldn't have even realized that I was feeling this small and timid in a male-dominated space if I hadn't been used to this rare female space. to Pretty Angry, the podcast where we try to investigate and articulate what the hell women are yelling about. Right. Dee and I are seniors at a women's college, which means for the past four years we've interacted almost exclusively with women on a day-to-day basis. Each week we're bringing you into some of the conversations we've had on campus about what it means to be a woman in 2018. Today we're talking about the subtle differences between men's and women's spaces. We're also talking about violence and the fear of violence that often feels like a reality for most women. So stay tuned. I think that many women probably experience a depressed sense of participation and an increased sense of self-consciousness in co-ed spaces, but would never even be able to pinpoint those feelings because they don't know what the alternative feels like. A recent study found that boys talk nine times more than girls in public school classrooms. What are the implications of girls speaking up less? The opinions, ideas, and inputs of female students are lost along the way. Decisions coming out of co-ed classrooms often unknowingly reflect the preferences of the boys rather than the girls. Another illuminating experience I've had recently might be a little more accessible for non-women college-goers. Gymnasiums. Has anyone experienced the discomfort of the lifting area in a co-ed gym? I only really realized this after working out in the Barnard gym and then joining the larger university Columbia gym. Well, actually, the realization came to me when I stood in the corner of the co-ed weight area watching these men grunt and moan and throw weights around like professionals, I couldn't even imagine grunting in public. Could you imagine grunting in public, Annie? No. And I can't imagine taking up space like that either. It's sort of like man spreading on the subway. 
What's mansplaining? The way that some men sit on the subway and they're taking up two seats with their legs spread wide open and it forces whoever's near them to stare at their crotches and it doesn't allow someone to sit in the seat next to them. Oh my gosh, I've totally seen that. Well, in contrast, most women sit with their legs crossed. So? We're less likely to take up extra space or speak up in class. It's almost like we feel like we matter less than the man, and the man deserves the room, and we'll become smaller to accommodate him. I don't feel like I matter less. I feel like I matter a lot. You do. If we do think this way, it's probably pretty subconscious. These are ideas that are embedded deep within us. Yeah, there are subtle ways that our gender roles affect our actions and choices, even choices as small as how to sit on the commute home. David Foster Wallace actually framed an idea like this pretty well in his famed commencement speech, This is Water. If you don't know this speech or even who David Foster Wallace is, no biggie. The first lines were something like, Two young fish swim by an older fish who nods to the kids and says, Morning boys, how's the water? The two fish keep swimming past until eventually one turns to the other and goes, What the hell is water? What if gender roles are like water? They keep us swimming, they define the lives of the fish, and yet we don't notice its wetness all around us. So water is wet? <laughs> Not now. <laughs> I was outside after a run taking pictures of the sunset, as one does, when a drunk old man walked by me on the sidewalk, but he decided to walk directly in front of me so that his chest brushed against my chest. In a split second, my stomach flipped and I walked directly inside afterward. The experience was disturbing, but nothing happened. It wasn't scarring. It was weird and annoying but not abnormal. Something similar had probably happened to me before, and the feeling of fear, the stomach-flipping fear, felt almost familiar. The fear felt familiar. Right. Women, we experience a split second of fear regularly. Do you think there are male listeners right now who can recall a time that the presence of a female made them scared in recent memory? A student who used to go here, who's also my friend, is like six foot two inches tall. Is that, is that right, Liz? Liz, if you're listening to this, can you tell me your actual height? Anyways, Liz is really tall for a woman. And even she was saying how she actually has noticed a separation between herself and other women in her life. When her and her friends walk home from a bar, for example, they refuse to go down a rather deserted side street something that Liz claims she never would have questioned if she was alone. Because of her height, and thus her power, she feels less vulnerable and thus conducts her life without as much fear in mind. The fact of the matter is, women are raped and abused at alarming rates. The Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network cites that one in four women will be raped in their lifetime. In comparison, the same source cites 1 in 10 men will be raped. These statistics are horrifying for everyone. And although there are many, many, many factors to be considered about these issues and these stats, I think the larger picture for these stats paint is often lost in conversation. Women are in danger. 
pretty much all women. And I think that we know it. I think that we've known it. And I think that vulnerability subtly rules much of our lives. The danger of outside violence, often male violence, is like water. Because of it, we swim. We avoid deserted streets. We call our moms when walking alone at night. We never set our drinks down. We hold our car keys as a weapon. We avoid eye contact with strangers. We tell our family where we're going. We're skeptical of creepy looking men on the train, in taxis, and bars. And all of this feels normal. Maybe even seems like it makes sense until you consider the fact that men don't feel the same fear. Men are not made to feel uncomfortable or vulnerable like we do. Men walk alone at night. Another element that makes up the water around us besides fear is blame. To avoid mistreatment by men, women are advised to travel in packs, to not wear revealing clothes or bring attention to ourselves. Most recently, I read that perpetrators look for women with ponytails and women without long nails. We're all told from a young age not to talk to strangers. The problem is that with all this advice we're given, it suggests that if we just act correctly, we won't be abused by men. But listeners, have you talked to a stranger in your life? Were you harassed by that stranger? See, a woman isn't harassed because she talks to a stranger. She's harassed because that stranger is someone willing to harass her. The truth is, we will all wear ponytails at some point. We'll cut our nails. We'll walk alone. We'll get in Ubers. We'll use dating apps. We might even get drunk and go home with a stranger we met out that night. Men will do these things too, but less than 10% of them will be assaulted. Statistically, one of my four other roommates will be assaulted. And it won't be because she's blackout drunk, or because she was alone, or because she wore a ponytail, or rejected a guy at a bar. She would only get sexually assaulted if she encountered someone who wanted to sexually assault her. My name is Amy Gong Liu. I'm a senior in Columbia College, and I'm studying human rights and Asian American studies. And women and girls' rights has been a big passion of mine for a long time. We're so glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you go to Columbia College. Yes. Which is one of the co-ed schools at Columbia, and we go to Barnard. Mm -hmm. Um, But you were also in a sorority for a while. Mm -hmm. Yes, so um, we were wondering if you've noticed differences between women's spaces and co-ed spaces, um, and especially in regards to, like, conducting yourself or Mm -hmm. just like the internal thought process yeah absolutely a lot of my human rights major classes have been at Barnard because Barnard Mm -hmm. has a really great human rights department so I've cross-registered and taken a bunch of my classes there and have noticed such a difference in the way I kind of hold myself in um, a classroom meant for an all kind of like women's space versus a co-ed class back at Columbia I've always felt more free to express my ideas I've always felt free to raise my hand and participate a little bit more, and there's not kind of the constant um, presence of being really vigilant or being really conscious of what I'm saying and how I'm saying it, and I feel like I'm comparing myself less as a student and as somebody giving an answer when I'm in an all-women's space than I am when I'm in a co-ed space. What, What does that difference feel like, or why do you think that you're feeling it? 
I think it's something really subtle. I think a lot of it can be encouragement from professors, first off, many of whom who at Barnard were women themselves, women who had worked in the human rights field and were really interested in mentoring and establishing a really friendly academic atmosphere for people who wanted to go into those classes and providing positive feedback as the people around me offered their thoughts and opinions. That was not something I saw so much in the human rights classes I had at Columbia where people I think were much more concerned with prestige and with getting a new kind of different opinion, getting something that was more trenchant rather than structuring it as a space of learning, but something that I thought in a classroom that was specific to Barnard's atmosphere was that my professors and the people around me were much more interested in collaboration and the kind of conscience that came out of that than getting results. I certainly think I've noticed a difference, especially in when I've had male professors versus when I've had female professors. I've found that just generally speaking, my male professors have been the ones who have pushed me, and it's almost like I feel this expectation to perform or really prove myself, not just as a person, but as a person of color, kind of in the human rights department, often relating to a very white, established, she's often a lawyer, somebody who's been in the field for a very long time. I feel like I have a standard to hit, and that standard often isn't, it's not really verbalized, it's not really set directly, but I feel like there's a kind of competence that I have to prove before I can learn. And it's, it's almost antithetical to learning because it's, it's like I have to prove that I've already know, known enough, done enough to be able to take, be taken seriously in a classroom. When I've been with female professors, that standard I don't feel is there. I can start with what I have. Whatever I have and whatever I'm bringing to the table is adequate enough, and I can use whatever I give to build and learn off of that. Open versus closed body language and what mm -hmm. people bring to the space, but often male professors standing and asserting their presence, right? And some of the female professors I've had standing and asserting, but also opening themselves up to their knowledge and expertise. Yeah. There's not a sense of hierarchy or dominance. It's just, this is what I am, this is what I'm bringing, but I'm open to kind of taking you in with me as well. It's important to clarify that um, I don't think the male students are standing up and like thinking to themselves, like, I want to be dominant, or like the professors are like, I'm going to like rule this space. It's so subtle and it's just differences that I think you wouldn't notice unless you are exposed to women's only classrooms or like female professors in largely women's spaces. And I think that's where the difference like really comes out, which I think is interesting. Um, and so not to blame the male professors or the male students. I think it's more of like being raised with a sense of like what they have to say is important. Um, and they're like worth listening to and like they are an expert in their field and so you know we're students to them and I think that's like a valid perspective. A lot of it just may be internalized self-worth right and that's not something that's inherently bad it's just a sense of different people walk into different classrooms with different senses of self-worth and how much weight their words are carrying right and for somebody to deliver and often that person is male to deliver their words with such a force that people automatically kind of accept it is something that women often aspire to. That is something that we're not really aware of that the difference exists until we are in an all-women space in a classroom. I totally agree that there is this difference in attitudes that often goes unnoticed and it's just a result of how we're raised and of society. Um, but that difference can also lead to 
a feeling of unsafety um, and like just a lack of safety for women in their interactions with men and in the world. Um, and I've won- I was wondering if you've experienced that. Yeah, I think subtlety is a really good point to touch on when we're talking about this question of fear and this question of a sense of pervasive, lingering violence. I think women are taught from early age that there's always going to be fear and there are always going to be situations with danger that we have to learn how to avoid. And maybe to protect ourselves from the fear rather than asking ourselves why this exists in the first place or why we're not taking more active steps to dismantle it, right? I think of being told as a girl not to walk down a dark street at night, not why there's not why I shouldn't be doing that, but instead that I just shouldn't. And to accept that as a truth. And as we were older, I don't know, we, I mean, we're in New York City right now going to school, feeling a sense of intuition not to go down a path that's poorly lit at night feeling a sense of intuition, always keeping a hand in my bag for something to use in case I feel unsafe. And that constant presence of just in case is something that a lot of women are familiar with. We're very prepared for the danger to happen. We don't know when or if, but we always have to be prepared. I think something that I've also noticed that is like just the monet, like monetization of feeling unsafe like I there's this app that I feel like everyone in my hometown had um that you pay to download it but like when you're walking home alone or you're walking to your car alone you like hold your finger on it and then if you release your finger it'll call the police for you and you have to pay to download it so someone's making money off of this lack of safety um that women are feeling and it's it's not it's not preventing anything it's just putting a band-aid on the problem right not even a band-aid it's business acknowledging that there's a universal need for it coming in to fill the universal need with a product and saying here pay money for this so you have something that perhaps make you makes you feel a little bit safer in the moment but what we're not questioning is why do we all have to download this app in the first place right why can i not walk home from a to b without feeling safe why is that not such a kind of universal desire And why do we have these middle parties, you know, buying products to make us feel safe or women who have to bring, I'm sure you've heard of this, but at the bar, um, a nail polish that changes color when you dip it into a drink to test if there are date rape drugs inside, not asking more. Why do we have to do that in the first place? Like I, I feel like everything's preventative um, and it's like all geared towards women, which kind of adds to the idea that like we have to not walk alone at night and we have to not talk to strangers and we have to wear the nail polish um and if we don't then you know if something were to happen like it might be our fault um and i think um, that's just is the nature of the issue too but i think in all the conversation about prevention it there's like yeah very little um talk about like who's to blame for the problem itself a lot of what we do to keep ourselves safe um doesn't really feel like too much of a burden a lot of the time. Like I'm, I'm, I'm used to not walking home alone at night much of the time, or like you know I'll feel a little bit uneasy, but I feel like you know I go about my my normal life because this is my normal life. Um, and it's not till I like talk to some of my guy friends, um, or the men in my life about their experiences and realize that there's a whole group of people, largely like half the population, arguably that 
does walk home alone at night and doesn't feel anxiety while doing it. Um, but I was in, like, Europe this summer, and I had, like, some friends who, like, hitchhiked with some random people, like, up to a beach, and they were like, oh, you should have come. And I'm like, I don't think I could ever get in a car with, like, a male stranger. That would never, ever, ever happen. Um, and, like, that's more of an extreme example, but I think it's interesting to think that the, the, the dichotomy between men and women and their experiences with violence is what kind of illuminates the fact that like things don't have to be this way and i think violence doesn't necessarily have to mean something bloody or gory rather i think when we think about the term we have to step away from the idea of it only being tied to bloodshed and we have to think of it in terms of a threat a looming kind of presence of fear and fear coming back to the concepts of power and control Right. Take the example of a woman being told and women being told not to walk a dark street at night. It's not necessarily society's impulse to fix whatever it is that's keeping women away from these streets. It's simply enough to say that this imminent threat, whatever it is that's out there, this danger, this um, threat to your physical safety, the only thing that you can do to avoid it is to divert yourself away from it, to not confront the threat straight up. And that in itself is a very distinguishing command, right? It's, we don't know what's out there. We don't know necessarily if you're going to get hurt or what happens if you do take that street, but you should be warned to stay away. And that kind of fear, I think, is connected to a much more kind of sinister pattern of who is it that exactly is trying to control, right? And control without the process of giving necessarily a solution. Why aren't we talking a little bit more about what it is that can connect point A to point B. Yeah, and it's it's historic, it's systematic, it's pervasive on every level of society. And so there's this question of like where where does it come from and how do we reach that point of origin or can we reach that point of origin and how do we try to solve it what can we even do because it can become very overwhelming right yeah can you expand a little bit more on like why you are calling that control or like sure. other examples of control might be sure yeah and control again coming back to this idea of violence doesn't necessarily have to be blood control doesn't have to necessarily be something as overt as me putting my hands in your shoulder and directing you away from something right we often know that in abuse and with abusive relationships, that control is often established through more subtle, manipulative, accepted ways. Mm-hmm. And the idea of maybe there isn't a broadcast message telling every single woman in this country to stay away from the street past 10 p.m., right? But the idea that there is something universal about it, that there's something universal about this fear, that there's something that is communicated and shared across women, we ask each other, hey, can you walk home with me just to make sure that we get home safe, means that there's something out there universal about this sense of control, about kind of what's establishing this fear in the first place. And I think to do a deeper dive into, okay, what are the subtleties of this control, given now that it doesn't have to be something so obvious, and how does this take form? And I think that's what makes the issue so hard to 
pinpoint mm-hmm. and thus solve. I mean, yeah, I, I think like where to start along these issues is like, you know, teaching consent, for example, and like trying to limit um, maybe the amount of weapons out there to hurt women. But I think you're really pinpointing a larger, um, deeper sense of like ominence of the world out there that like wants to hurt us. Right. Yeah. And that can be difficult for a lot of people to accept, right? Because it's not obvious. I think people are always searching for the obvious. They think hurt can be shown. Hurt is demonstrated very clearly, but we don't necessarily take a step back to think about the origins or the intent of hurt, right? And like Annie said, these big questions of where things start can only really be traced back to or attempted to be traced back to when we have this question of awareness, building awareness, not necessarily limiting things, building it up, monetizing off the universal, but becoming aware of the universal and making sure that people around us are similarly up to that level as well. So what do you think is a way that us or one of our listeners could start to explain this to their friends or their family? How how can we start to make a difference, do you think? You pointed out kind of the fundamental difficulty about this issue is that there are no easy solutions, right? And if there were, we would have found them by now. Instead, I think what we have to do, and one term that kind of came up a lot today as we were talking is subtlety, right? And how subtlety often is not what we're looking for in terms of questions about safety, power, violence. These are really, really big terms, right? And I think one concrete and perhaps the most important step that people can take is to engage the people around them and to push for conversations in which people confront the different levels of awareness they have in their lives. Perhaps it hasn't even been said the kind of fear that often does remain unspoken for women at crowded places, when they can't hitchhike, often fear kind of like for their own safety. Perhaps that action could be something as simple as you, D, telling your guy friends exactly what it is that makes you not be able to hitchhike, not be able to stick your thumb out in the road, and challenging that level of that gap that's there in terms of I can do this while I cannot. And I think everything builds from there, right? And I think these are small blocks to larger conversations that can be had eventually to where when people are aware enough of these subtleties to be able to dig back to the origins and say, okay, so what exactly is it that spurred these differences in the first place? More than anything, again, this comes back to a question of self-assuredness and self-worth. And starting from day one, a lot of the attention and love that we give to people, that we give to children, comes back to the sense of your words, your worth, your confidence, your presence is valid, right? And so something as parenting, something as small as teachers who work with children, I think it's very important to establish from day one that the gender parity in terms of being able to be told that somebody's opinions may be worth more than yours or maybe a boy's contributions are just naturally kind of expressed to you with more excitement these levels need to change and everybody deserves to be met with the same sense of respect from day one. What about the idea of blame in the other direction? What do you mean? I think Amy did a really great job at highlighting just how vague and non-concrete the issues of violence and assault are. Sure, it's hard to say where these systems of fear and control came from. 
but even the line of consent and non-consent can be blurry. When both parties are drunk, for example, or when couples are in a relationship, it can be hard to say if consent was given or not. Absolutely. Things can get blurry, and that's an important thing to acknowledge. Right. But for the majority of the women who report being assaulted, the lines weren't blurry. The way I explained this to my British father in one of our conversations was through a video in terms of tea. Basically, the idea is that when someone doesn't want to drink tea, you don't go to their house, make them tea, and make them drink it, right? Right. So you wouldn't force someone to drink tea while they couldn't stand up straight, right? Or when they were sleeping, or make them drink the tea while they are verbally protesting. You probably wouldn't even force someone to drink tea when they were silent, but clearly scared, frozen, robotic. No, I definitely wouldn't. I think it's a mistake to think that the majority of the time the lines aren't blurry and consent isn't clear. Valid. But what about the times when it is blurry? Or what about the times when women make it up, falsely accusing men of assaulting them in order to like ruin his life or gain attention? Interestingly, while this may happen, it happens in astoundingly small numbers. False allegations make up 0.62% of all rape cases, actually, according to the Office of National Statistics. Wow. In fact, men are more likely to be raped than to be falsely accused of rape. Better understanding consent is in the best interest of everyone. And because false accusations are so, so, so much less likely than actual assault, Continual shifting of attention towards false accusations works to hurt the overall movement towards progress. Not to mention the fact that historically, the women who do speak out against their sexual assailants have not gained positive attention. Kesha, when speaking out against her abuser, was not allowed to work anymore. She was sued. Similarly, when Taylor Swift was going through her own sexual assault trial, she was heavily ridiculed for seeking attention, and she literally went into hiding for a year all because a DJ sued her after he assaulted her. More seriously and recently, Dr. Ford, the woman who accused Justice Kavanaugh of assault, received death threats for her words. She had to emotionally relay the details of the traumatic incident in front of the nation. It's hard to believe that she would do all of that if she simply was making it up. Not to mention the fact that most accusations come from women who have no fame or no access to the spotlight. Most people know a woman who's been the victim of sexual assault. If you're a woman of color, specifically a black woman, you're at a greater risk of this. 60% of women in the US are white, but of women who are sexually assaulted in their lifetime, only 18% are white. If you are a trans person, meaning you identify with a gender separate from the one you were born with, you have almost a 50% greater chance of being sexually assaulted. When thinking about violence in general, beyond sexual violence, women are more than 40% more likely than men to be victims of domestic abuse. Black people account for 31% of police killing victims, but make up just 13% of the US population. One in nine trans people will be murdered. Statistics and discussion of violence don't come close to doing these realities justice. Violence is the water that so many people swim in, and these identities overlap, making normal life for some Americans full of fear. Wow, that makes me pretty angry. If you or someone you know has experienced violence or rape, 
call or visit the RAIN Sexual Assault Hotline, 800-656-4673, or the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800-799-7233. <laughs> listening to episode 5 of our five-part series on womanhood in 2018. To continue the conversation, comment on our episodes on prettyangry.org, on Instagram at prettyangrypod, on the Pretty Angry Podcast page on Facebook, or in the reviews and ratings section of the Pretty Angry page on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much for listening.